0: Continue to worship the Lord as we open the scriptures and hear from Him. Um, If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is our fifth and final week uh, looking at this peculiar book in the middle of the Old Testament. So if you're following along in the Bible and you open it up right in the middle, you'll likely hit the Psalms, go a couple of books to the right, and you'll hit Ecclesiastes chapter two, and we're in verses eighteen through twenty-six. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verses eighteen through twenty-six. You guys remember famously this book starts off in chapter one, verses one and through three. Um, the the writer identifies himself as a son of David, as a king over Israel. So we think he's Solomon, um, and then he writes kind of his thesis statement for the book, or at least for these first couple of chapters of the book. He says, Vanity of vanities, chapter 1, verse 2. All is vanity. And what can there be gained under the sun? He asks in verse 3. The implied answer is nothing. Life is vain. There's nothing to be gained of ultimate value under the sun. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. Um, And then he kind of has this poetic reflection On the repetitious nature of the natural world, the winds have their circuits, the waters have their cycles. And this repetitive nature of the natural world is reflective of our lives. There's nothing new under the sun. The only things we can do are things that have already been done. Um, So he's reflecting on the vanity of the world. And then the next sermon we looked at, the back half of chapter 1, he talks about the endless pursuit of wisdom. And how we're on this endless quest for answers about how to fix the world, about how to fix our hearts. And under the sun, left to ourselves, there are no answers for us. And then in chapter two, he talks about how he had this strategy of overcoming the vanity of the world through an endless pursuit of pleasure. And that didn't work out, it was striving after the wind. And then he reflects on the shared fate of both the wise and the foolish. And the fact that wise people die just like foolish people die is another pointer to the vanity of life. What's the point of being wise if I'm going to die just like the foolish person? Why don't I just live like a fool? What does my life matter if we're all going to end up the same way? So he's reflecting on the vanity of life. Well, finally, we've now come to sort of his last piece of evidence for the vanity of life in chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. So brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun this also is vanity So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation, even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from God... Who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Patrick Morley is a Christian author and sort of a specialist in men's ministry, ministering to and helping disciple men. And he wrote a very popular book many years ago called The Man in the Mirror. It sold something like four million copies. Well, in another one of his books called Pastoring Men, Morley writes about one of the biggest sources of discontentment and depression among men, something he refers to as success syndrome. He writes from his observations ministering to men that their biggest struggles in life don't come from their failures to achieve their dreams, but from their success of achieving their dreams and then coming to realize that that success didn't fill the holes in their souls. Success syndrome. They got the job they wanted to get. They made the money they wanted to make. They bought the house they wanted to own. They started the family they wanted to have. By that point, they're in their 30s and 40s. And then all of a sudden, they realize, despite all of this success, there's still something missing. There's still this low-level, residual discontentment in life. Like, I'm missing something. Like, despite getting everything I ever wanted, I'm missing something. And Morley writes, this is what often leads to what we commonly refer to as a midlife crisis. When a person has obtained everything they ever wanted, job, money, family, home, but there's still this deep existential angst. There's still this soul-level ache in a man's soul. That's... Success syndrome, Morley says. Similarly, Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist who wrote a well-known book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which is a historical survey of how people throughout history have tried to obtain happiness. And through this book, he documents how, quote, studies find a very weak correlation between wealth and contentment. And the more prosperous a society grows, the more common is depression. He goes on to say, quote, The principle is this, we are unhappy even in success because we seek happiness from success. Wealth, power, achievement, family, material comfort and security, the external goods of the world can lead only to momentary satisfaction which fades away, leaving you more empty than if you had never tasted the joy in the first place. So do you see how these two authors are saying the same thing? Morley is a practitioner and a minister who deals personally with the struggles of people. Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist and an academic researcher, but they're both saying the same thing. Success in life very often leads to misery in life because we realize the success we achieved doesn't satisfy our souls like we thought it would. And we would have been more happy if we'd never been so successful in the first place because then we wouldn't realize that success doesn't make us happy. This is why oftentimes, when people from prosperous nations like our own visit third world countries and we see people living in deep poverty, very often it will stick out to us how happy these people are. Like, dude, you have no shoes. You're living in a shack. You're living on less than a dollar a day. And yet, there's this purity to their joy because they don't know anything different. They don't know that living in America in a mansion, like most of us do, let's be honest, doesn't actually work to bring us the joy we all want. They're still living with that illusion, but for so many of us, that illusion has been broken. For so many of us who've experienced success syndrome, the illusion has been broken. We have the money we want. We have the family we want, the home we want, the job we want, but we don't have that deep sense of purpose and joy and satisfaction that we want. As the well-known Brooklyn philosopher, the notorious B.I.G, said, "Mo money." Mo problems. I don't know what they want from me. It's like the mo money we come across, the mo problems we see. So good. Man, I'm more of a West Coast guy normally, but that's one of the best songs from rap in the 90s. Mo money, mo problems, more success. More misery. That is the exact same thing Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. Here's the way I've put it the temporary nature of our possessions points to the vanity of life. The fact that we work for these things that we can't hold on to points to the vanity of life I work and I succeed in my work of making money I work and I succeed at my work getting a home I succeed in starting a family I succeed in getting the job but it would have been better if I hadn't succeeded in gaining all those things in the first place because now I just realize how vain it all is and I'm more miserable than when I started So let's look back at the text and see how he lays all this out. Starting in verse 18, he writes, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it all to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether the man I leave it behind to will be wise or will be a fool. So he's making the observation that he has to leave behind everything he worked for. The business he built, the money he made, the possessions he acquired, he has to leave it all to a man who will come after him. And who knows if that man will do something wise with it or foolish with it. He doesn't know. He can't say. He has no control over it. The business he built could be totally ruined by his successor. The property he's developed could be destroyed by his inheritor. The money he's earned could be uselessly spent by his children. He continues in verse 20. It could be a wise person or it could be a fool. Yet this person will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. My hard work, my wise actions, led to the fruit of my labor. And it could be some fool who is master over all of which I worked for. So this made me think about University of Michigan football, the project in vanity that it is. But you think about Lloyd Carr. He was the head coach from 1995 until 2007. Coach Carr helped the team win a national championship. They won five Big Ten championships. They dominated Michigan State. They were at least competitive against Ohio State. And Coach Carr really built Michigan into one of the premier football programs in the country. And then he retires. And who does he leave it all behind to? Rich Rodriguez. And then who? Brady Hoke. And then who? Jim Harbaugh. And you can just hear Lloyd Carr saying it, can't you? Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. But the fact is, the same is true for all of us. You work hard, you get rich, you build a house, you acquire possessions, and then what? You leave your money to your thankless kids. They sell your house for chump change. They peddle your stuff at a garage sale. That's the legacy of our work, our money, and our stuff. It is all vanity. So Solomon says in verse 20, I turned about. And gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge of skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not work for it. Like Jim Harbel. What vanity and great evil. <laughs> That's what he says. So Solomon is depressed and despairing over all the things he worked for because he's ultimately going to leave it to someone who did not work for it. It's like he's saying, this isn't even fair. This is my stuff. I worked for it. I get to keep it. But it's not so. Everything we own ultimately, ultimately ends up at Salvation Army. And someone who did not work for it gets to enjoy it. So he asks in verse 22, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? What does he have? It's a rhetorical question, right? What does a man gain from all his toil and striving under the sun? I mean, really, really, what do you gain? Nothing. Ultimately, nothing. And then in verse 23, the real result of this realization, here's really what all you're left with. All his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. So that's the only thing he gains from all his toil, sorrow, vexation, frustration, and a lack of peace, a lack of restful peace. Just like Morley says that he sees in the hearts of so many men today, people struggling not with failure people struggling not with poverty, people struggling with success. People struggling with prosperity and then realizing, man, the success didn't do it for me. The prosperity isn't true. Deep, lasting prosperity. Instead, there's just despair, depression, midlife crisis. You know, it's funny, when I was at Woodside Romeo, we had an elder named Dan Murphy, and now at Woodside Lapeer, one of our elders' names is Jim Durbin, you met a moment ago, and for each one of these men listening to their stories like I've been able to as I've gotten to know them, they each told me that for a long time, well into their adult lives, they lived by the mantra, he who has the most toys wins. They each separately quoted that line to me as the principle by which they lived by. He who has the most toys wins in the game of life. Dan was in finance, Jim is an engineer, and both were massively successful. Nice family, nice salary, nice car, then a little nicer car, nice house, then a little nicer house. Jim and Melody purchased a home in Macomb, really nice, really sizable. But Jim, after he moved into it, eventually gave it the nickname, quote, the big dumb house. He still refers to it as that this day, the big dumb house. But I'm like, wait, Jim, that's your dream house. That's not a big dumb house. That's the house of your dreams. But you see, it was about that time that Jim moved into the house that God started to reveal this exact same stuff in Jim's heart. God started to poke at his heart, started to open his eyes to the exact same stuff Solomon is concluding here. Success in life very often leads to misery in life. My money leads to more problems. My stuff is all going to be given away. My dream house is a big dumb house. And there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more than the rat race of making a bunch of money, getting a bunch of stuff, climbing the ladder of success. There's got to be something more than life under the sun. So it's interesting. The next verse... For the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon finally mentions God. Up until the point of this verse, 23, nearly two chapters into the book, Solomon has not mentioned God even once. But look at verse 24. He writes, There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, this also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat? Apart from God, who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. Aha! Solomon says this is the best way to live. He says there is nothing better than that we should eat, drink, enjoy our work, and view it all as coming from the hand of God. Then we can enjoy these things for what they are. When we view our money and possessions as gifts from God we can enjoy them for what they are. They are not little gods in and of themselves that can satisfy our souls. No, they are little gifts from God. Gifts that we hold on to loosely because we know these gifts aren't going to ultimately satisfy our souls anyway. Only God can. You see, Solomon is calling us to put our trust in the giver of the gifts, not the gifts themselves. Solomon is saying, your job is a gift. Success at your job is not the means to satisfy your soul. Enjoy this gift. Delight in this gift. But don't make it ultimate. He's saying, your possessions are a gift. Your house, your car, your belongings, your possessions are ultimately gifts from God's hand. They are not meant to satisfy your soul. Enjoy these gifts. Delight in them, but don't make them ultimate, or they will let you down, just like all of Michigan's coaches have let all of us down. Listen to how author Tim Keller puts it in his brilliant book, Making Sense of God. He writes this, The key to properly enjoying the things of life is not to love the things of life less, but to love God more. Of course, not even the strongest believers love God perfectly, nor does anyone get close to doing so. Yet, to the degree you move toward loving God supremely, the things in life begin to fall in order, into their proper place. Instead of looking to the things of the world as the deepest source of your contentment, you can enjoy them for what they are. Money and career, for example, just become what they're supposed to be. Work becomes work, a great way to use your gifts and be useful to others. Money becomes just money, a great way to support your family, but these things are not your source and safety and contentment. God is. That first line is so important. The key to properly enjoying the things of life is not to love the things of life less, but to love God more. The key to properly enjoying your family, to properly enjoying your work, to properly enjoying your possessions is not to love your family or your work or your possessions less. The key is to make sure you love God more than you love those things, infinitely more than you love those things. And when God is first in your life, then the rest of life, falls into place. When love for God is central in your life, then everything else finds its proper orbit. And the good news, friends, is the gospel is that we can have a loving, intimate relationship with God through Jesus. Through Jesus, we escape living life only under the sun because through Jesus we become citizens of heaven. Through Jesus, we escape the temporary vain nature of life because through Jesus, we receive and experience eternal life. And it's because Jesus did what all of us have failed to do and live a life that perfectly honored God. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He lived a life of joy and purpose and love and righteousness. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. And then Jesus died the death that we should have died, taking upon himself the curse of our sin. And then Jesus rose from the grave so that we too might experience newness of life. This is the gospel, friends. This is the good news. And so I encourage you to trust in that message. Trust in Jesus with your life and listen to how the gospel makes a difference in how we relate to our possessions and our work. Again, Tim Keller once more, quote, once we know through faith in Christ's work, once we know that God is, that we are reconciled to God, once we know that, once we know that the Creator is now not just our sovereign Lord, but also our Heavenly Father, when we know that, we can begin to have a more sacramental experience of the world. In other words, we can begin to see everything as a free gift from our Father. And a foretaste of the glory and goodness to come in our eternal inheritance. In short, attachment to God amplifies and deepens enjoyment of the world. It doesn't diminish it. Here then is the message. Don't love anything less. Instead, learn to love God more. And you will love other things with far more satisfaction. You won't overprotect your things. You won't overexpect things from them. You won't be constantly furious with them that they hadn't given you what you hoped. So don't stifle your passionate love for anything in the world. Rather, redirect your greatest love toward God by loving Him with your whole heart and loving Him for Himself, not just for what He can give you. Then and only then does contentment start to come. You see, I want to experience success in life. And you, I trust, want to experience success in life. In your work, in your family, in your finances, we want to experience success. But we don't want to experience success syndrome that experience of finally getting everything we wanted to get, and then it lets us down. So let's put God at the center of everything. Let's love Him more than everything. And then let's experience the peace, the contentment, the abiding joy of seeing life as a gracious gift from the hand of God every moment every opportunity every provision is a gift from our gracious God is life fleeting sure are our temporary are our possessions temporary sure but in Jesus we receive eternal life in the future and we experience Purpose in life now. So let's enjoy it all to His glory. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven. We've gathered here this morning to sit under your word. To hear from you. So God, we thank you for the spirit-inspired scriptures. And we thank you for the power of the gospel that echoes from each page of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God, we want to learn. We want to grow. We want to be humbled. And we thank you, God, for this word in Ecclesiastes. And we pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would use the seeds that have been planted to bear fruit unto eternity. And Father, use this word this morning to confront us, to call us out of the illusion that we can find life and purpose and contentment and peace and joy in stuff, in money, in work. Wake us up, God from the illusion of material success leading to abiding joy. And Father, call us to life in Christ. Call us to peace in Him. No matter our bank account, no matter what fills our homes or what our home looks like, God, fill us with the joy of knowing You and having the treasure of the gospel eternal life. Father in heaven, we pray. We pray for your Holy Spirit to move. For so many of us, we're entranced. For so many of us, we need you to do something supernatural. And so we invite your Holy Spirit. We call on your Holy Spirit to help us surrender all of life to you and to begin to truly enjoy it for what it is, a gift. And so we sing now and we receive these words.